listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. There's hardly a, a murder case that happens in New Zealand that there isn't, unless it's clear cut, there's a concern about whether the justice system got it right. And, of course, we know that it's got it wrong in the past on murder. And one that's always troubled me has been the Scott Watson conviction for the murder of Ben and Olivia. And I remember when I was in Parliament being sent material and studying it at some length and meeting with people that had written the books, Keith Hunter and Mike Gallagher, and thinking, no, this is something's not right here. Something smells. And going along to some of the meetings and protests where I met in Christchurch, Neville Munro, who's a campaigner for Scott Watson. And Neville joins us here. Good morning, Neville. Good morning. Or afternoon, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me, what started you down this path? Uh, well, it's a long story. I'll try to make it short. My my partner, my ex-partner, um, Brenda, who, who I was with for about 10 years, who actually now I, funnily enough, I flat with her and her current partner. She's a very, very good friend of mine. Um, I w knew that I was reading up a book on the David Bain case, all the stuff that Joe Karam had done. And she said to me, you should find out about the Scott Watson case. It's really, it's really interesting. And so the lady I was with at the time, I said to her, look, let's try and get some books on Scott Watson, just because I've been told I should. And um, we found that somebody was selling online all the books. Oh, there were six of them, I think. Every book ever written about the Scott Watson case. So I said, well, yes, I'll buy that for, it was only a few dollars. I got all the books. And I, the first one I read was Trial by Trickery. And uh, I, I look at Who the- Who Trial by Trickery? Rabbi Trickery was written by Keith Hunter, the same okay. guy that did Murder on the Blade, yes. yes. And um, I, I thought, Keith Hunter, hang on a minute, That's that, isn't that not the trumpet player from the Auckland Symphonia? Because I used to be a violinist in the orchestra many years ago, and I thought, I wonder if that's the same guy. So I emailed him, and it turned out that it, what Keith Hunter was, the ex-first trumpet in the Auckland Symphonia. I and, did not know that about Keith. Yeah, yeah, we're both we've got both got a musical background. When the orchestra went full time in '74, I joined as a full time member. Keith then left to take up a career in journalism. Uh, so, so I anyway, I emailed I emailed him and said, "Look, I didn't realise it was you, Keith. I'm, you know, can we meet sometime? Because he lives in Auckland, like I do. Can we meet and have a coffee?" So we did, and since then we've had many coffees um, and many talk, many long talks about the case. He's a lovely. Lovely, lovely man. He is. He, he's a man of absolute integrity, 100% trustworthy, um, somebody I admire. You walk into his house in, 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 in off Ponsonby Road, I think it is, and he, the whole wall in his office is just full of awards for journalism, a whole wall, wall cups and plaques and all sorts of things. He's a very, very accomplished man. But um, any time I've, I've rung up and said, look, can we have a coffee? We're going to meet. He's always willing to yeah, drop what he's doing, come down and have a talk. We've become very good friends, I think, over the last few years. Um, can you uh, do one thing for me, Neville? Can yeah. you give him my very, very best regards? I absolutely will, yes. I because will. I hold him in yeah. extremely high regard. 
Yeah, and yeah. here he is, a great journalist, yeah, who has been besmirched. Yeah, who was besmirching him? May I ask? Oh, the 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 other media, because he's always been standing up for Scott Watson. No one will listen to him. Well, I know that. Uh, well, plenty of us are listening to him. I can tell you that. And uh, I know. So anyway, carry on. I interrupted you. No, sorry. Ian Wishart's one of the people that uh, did a bit of besmirching, and uh, I dealt with him in my own way. I won't go any further than that. But uh, Ian Wishart, in my opinion, is a man with no no credibility at all, and I okay. my opinion. But uh, well, another person I was very fortunate to meet through all this is a man named Warwick Jennis, who was a head of the MRG, the Maritime Research Group, who who. Uh, Yes. Produced the MRG report. I don't know if you I've got a I copy. I have read of that. I have yes. read that. That's right. I remember there's a comment from you at the bottom of that, which is excellent. Um I, I've met with Warwick several times. Uh and had all sorts of long conversations. I've had off the record conversations with him about uh, things he's found out which were very, very shocking and very surprising. Things that he, that he didn't even put in the report and he's told me confidentially um there there is a uh, there's also I'll, I'll tell you now there's a there's a document that's come into our position uh i can't talk about because it's so sensitive i can't talk about it on the radio because you know certain people's feelings especially the hope smart family's feelings could be hurt by this it's purported to come from one of the real perpetrators the people who are actually involved in the abduction and murder of ben and olivia I won't say any more than that. I, I, I will send you a copy of that by the end of the week. Uh, I've also got a lot of details about about the, what's going on at the moment with the parole hearing, et cetera. We're, we're still compiling that, but I'd like to email that to you also. You'll get that by, by uh, 5 p.m. this Friday, so you can look through it and, and make any comments. But uh, the, 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 two, the two main things that people need to know that are going on at the moment is uh, – Scott comes up um, for, for a parole hearing somewhere around the end of this month. We don't have a specific date. This will be his fifth parole hearing, and he's been continually turned down for reasons that, in my opinion, just just don't stack up. Uh, they don't make any sense. They're, they're contra very contradictory. One minute they're saying he's a model prisoner, he gets on well with people and has worked well in the prison, and then they turn around and say he's a high risk to society and can't be let out. That doesn't make sense. But uh, I'll, I'll, we can talk more about that later. Uh, the other the other thing that's uh, very concerned that we're all concerned about is that he's due for for his final appeal to be heard by the Court of Appeal in May of next year. Um, we've got serious um, serious uh, concerns about that. Uh, not the least of which were the remarks by, made by uh, Justice Sir Graham Pankhurst regarding that hearing that uh, even though the hair evidence has now been discredited, and remember the hair evidence was what they, what Christy MacDonald said, that the whole case was built basically on the hair evidence. It was the, big, the strongest plank they had against Scott Watson, and that's now been completely discredited by the Doyle report. But then Pankhurst turns around when referring the case on to the, on to the Court of Appeal. He, he says to them, but in spite of the fact that the hair evidence basically no longer exists, um, there's still a very strong case against Scott Watson, which uh, to me is absolutely, I'd like to know, and we're going okay, to ask. Yeah, well, you're 
right up with the case. Yeah. For most people, yeah, we can't even remember it. No, no. We can't even remember the shocking murders because it was would, 23 years ago or so. Would you like me to run run briefly through what happened? I would love you to run through the through the murder. Yes, I can do that. And run us through the case and just yep. give us a grand overview and then we'll get on to where things are at. So in your yep. own way, tell us the story. Okay. Uh New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety-seven. Uh, a, a young couple, Ben Smart and Olivia Hope, went to a party at Fernow Lodge, which is in the Marlborough Sounds. It's it's um, in uh, in uh, Endeavour Inlet, which is off Queen Charlotte Sound. I don't know if you know the area, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a very popular uh, uh, place for New Year's Eve celebrations in, in that area. A lot of people came to it. There were about ooh, about 2,000 people there at that party, big party in the pub, and it spilled out into the garden bar, etc. you know. Uh, Scott Watson was there. Scott Watson was a local guy who, who'd um, been in trouble with the law in his youth, but nothing serious, just petty, petty crimes. In his own words, he was a little shit <laughs> growing up and got into trouble. And... Um, but for the last eight years before that, he hadn't committed any serious crimes at all. He hadn't been to jail, hadn't done anything. He, he decided on his own to, to to put his life of petty offending behind him and go straight, as it were, and live, live a decent life. He just built himself a, a 26-foot sloop out of steel, which is no mean feat for a young guy. It's a very specialist type of welding that you need to do to, to make a boat like that. And he, he did it very successfully. So he, he went to that party along with all these other people. And uh, after the after the party ended, uh, let's see how I can put this. Uh, after the party ended, Ben and Olivia uh, went back to the to the boat that she'd come on. She she'd chartered a boat along with her friend and her sister and some friends. They went back to that boat in a water taxi with, with a um, guy named Guy Wallace. Uh, when they got back to the boat. Uh, which I oh, name slips my mind, but it's not important. They went back to the boat that they came on. A whole lot of gate crashes had got on there, and there was no left, nowhere left for them to sleep. So Olivia said, "To hell with this! I can't sleep here. Let's get back in the water taxi and see if the water taxi driver can help us." Because because Guy Wallace also worked at Fernow Lodge as a barman, and and that, she said to to Guy Wallace, look, is there any rooms left at Fernow Lodge for us to stay? And and Guy said, no, well, it's New Year's Eve, we're all full up. Um, and then there was another guy in the in the, in the the water taxi as well. It was commonly become known as the mystery man, a, a scruffy guy with long hair who hadn't shaved for a few days and smelt of bourbon, they said. He'd been drinking bourbon at the bar all night. And he, he piped up and said to Ben and Olivia, well, there's plenty of room on my boat. You can come and stay with me. And um, so Guy Wallace um, eventually, and there, were another, there was another young couple on that boat as well, uh, Hayden Morrissey and his girlfriend, I think she was Sarah Dyer. So they are witnesses to all this. Uh, they went back to the to the boat that the, that the mystery man was on, which is what, it's commonly become known as the mystery catch. It was a large wooden uh, two-masted catch, about 40 feet long, very distinctive-looking boat with with a big blue stripe along it and about six or seven 
portholes with huge brass surrounds, very distinctive looking boat. In fact, it was the one off design. Nobody else has ever seen any boat that looked like that anywhere. I mean, I've been boating 40 years and I've never seen anything anywhere that looked anything like it. So it was very easy to identify, right? And and that guy Wallace felt uneasy about this scruffy, long-haired man because he was a bit a bit sleazy. And he, he got a bad feeling. And he said to Ben and Olivia before he dropped them off, he said, Are you sure you're okay with this? Are you sure you want to get on this boat with this guy? And and they replied, Oh, yes, yeah, gonna be fine. Happy New Year. See you later. And that's the last anybody well, it's not the last anybody's ever seen. It was the last guy Wallace ever saw of them. Um How old were they? Ben and Olivia. Ben Smart was twenty-three, I believe. Uh, Olivia was seventeen. They had, oh had they had had a relationship prior. Uh, at that time, they weren't they weren't in a relationship, but they they met up and sort of got together again at the party. Okay. And, and so, yeah, they got on the boat. Then um, nobody heard from them again, and and they didn't they didn't go back they didn't go back to their parents' place either of them after the party. And by the 2nd of January, the parents were starting to worry. They thought, well, where are our kids? Why haven't they come home from the party? And they waited. Uh, I think it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the 3rd of January. They, they, they'd they had enough. The parents, they thought, there's something wrong. What's, what's happened to our kids? So they phoned the local police and uh, reported them missing. Now, um, uh, to, to just cut a long story short, uh, the police, for, in their wisdom, decided to ca- discount the mystery catch altogether and, and tell the public that it didn't exist. They discounted Guy Wallace's evidence and the evidence of, of, of Sarah Dyer and Hayden Morrissey about letting – they described what it was like letting the people off of this catch. They actually grabbed hold of it and hung on to it while, the, while Ben and Olivia climbed on board and they could see the big brass portholes and how big the boat was. And now Scott, the, the police just discounted all that and they, then they came up with this idea that it wasn't it wasn't the mystery catch that they went to at all. It was Scott Watson's boat. Now, Scott Scott's boat was um, – they, they elected Scott as a suspect – uh, after looking at all the all the local people, they must have gone to the local police and said, "Well, look, who who's who's who have you got on your books that's a, a bit shady?" And they they found this guy called Scott Watson who'd been in trouble with the law a few years ago. He was alone on his boat, so to me, he was an easy target. Well, we'll we'll point out our investigation towards him. But the thing the thing that they got wrong is that in saying that he was alone on his boat, he actually wasn't. He was in a what they call a raft up, tied up with two other boats, and there were a total of eleven other people in that raft up. And now, now you, um, when you, when you realise that when you look at the evidence, uh, when he got that the police say that when he got back to his to his boat, when the, the they say the water taxi driver actually dropped the the, the kids off to Scott Watson's boat, which is way smaller, way smaller than the mystery catch, and that they got on board with, with, with him, and then the next thing, he murdered them on his boat while in a raft up with these other people. And, of course, the reason that's impossible is, uh, you know, to, to, to attack two healthy young people in, in a situation like that where, 
when boats are tied together, if, if, if there's some kind of violent act going on, the boat will rock, and every other boat that's tied up to it will rock violently as well. And you'll hear the sounds of people, you know, crashing around and yelling out. What, whatever happens when, when you're trying to rape someone and murder two people, it's, it's, it's not going to be a quiet affair. And yet the people on these uh, the, in court, the people that were on these two other boats testified that they heard no sound whatsoever after Scott got back to his boat. And Scott came over. Already, they, already, Neville. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's extraordinary. It and like it Guy is. Wallace, you can't yeah. mistake those two boats. Absolutely not. There's, you look at the picture of one side and uh, one alongside the other, Scott Watson's boat is actually about one third by volume, the size of the mystery catch. It looks and, like a toy. And isn't it one you climb up to and the other one you'd climb down to? Absolutely. You get about a three-foot climb up to get on the mystery catch, whereas to get out of a Nyad water taxi onto Scott's boat, you would be stepping straight across. But um, all the all these people testified that they heard nothing, they felt nothing. And when Scott got back to his boat, first of all, he was drunk. He was very drunk, and he, he wandered over to the other boats and tried to get them out of bed to party with them. And they they basically told him to f off. We're going to sleep. Go away, Scott. So then he went to the other boat on the raft up, which was called the Bianca. Two people on board there also told him to bugger off. We, you know, we're trying to go to sleep. We don't want to get up and party. So. According to Scott, he, he he gave up that idea, went back to his boat, cooked himself up a feed, and went to sleep. And but 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 the the, the crown's contention was that he'd, he'd gone through the, this violent act that happened on his boat, and then none of these people heard a thing or felt any movement, which is impossible, really. But there's another piece of evidence I want to want you all to consider. That's very, very important because the Crown, Scott Watson was convicted on the grounds, on the basis that he was the mystery man, that the long-haired, scruffy guy, um, you know, with him drinking bourbon all night was actually Scott Watson, and he was the one that was on the water taxi, and he was the one that invited the kids back to his boat. Now, there's, there's proof absolute that he wasn't the mystery man, and it's what we call the timing evidence. Uh, the bar staff, multiple people who worked in the bar, testified that the mystery man was at the bar drinking bourbon from at least 8 o'clock onwards on New Year's Eve. Remember that time, 8 o'clock. And then... Scott Watson didn't come ashore with all the people from the Mina Cornelia, which is the boat he was rafted up next to. There was seven people on that boat. So Scott and those other seven people all came to, to shore in a water taxi together no earlier than 9.30. So there's a one-and-a-half-hour gap. For, for one-and-a-half hours, Scott was still on the Mina Cornelia drinking and having a party with seven witnesses while the mystery man was sitting at the bar drinking bourbon. They could not have been the same person. Yet that piece of evidence seems to have been overlooked in court that the, the defence team didn't pick up on it. As I say, it's proof absolute. You forget about all the arguments about blink photographs and misleading the witnesses, which they did. But, I mean, forget about all that. The timing evidence proves absolutely that the two men could not have been one and the same. But, and this is this is this is a problem for us. Um, in the court of appeal, they've only allowed two points of law to be discussed. Their timing evidence isn't one of them, so they're not even going to be able to talk about that. And there's a, there's a piece of clear evidence which would exonerate Scott Watson immediately, 
send them home, set free and exonerated, they're not allowed to talk about it. And this is the this is the closed-minded, strange way in which our legal system works. You know, they're, they're confined only to talking about two points of law in the Court of Appeal. One of them, I believe, is, is to do with the efficacy of the hair evidence, that, that which has basically already been destroyed by the Doyle report. And the, and the other one is the... the um, Sorry, the what's the what's the second point that uh, it's the the identification process? I, I beg your pardon. Where again, where where they're talking about the the blink photograph and well, in the you know the, the the methods used by the police to identify Scott as the mystery man, and they they used what was what was now referred referred to as a trick photograph. Everybody said that the mystery man. Uh, had sort of hooded eyes. They looked like they were half shut. So of all the all the montage photographs they took of Scott Watson, they finally came up with one where they caught him halfway through a blink and it, his eyes were half shut. And so they showed that photograph to the witnesses and they said, well, look, does this guy look like the mystery man? And they said, yes, uh, the eyes are similar, but the hair's all wrong. This guy had shoulder-length hair. And then the police turned around and said to the witnesses, oh, that doesn't matter because he's cut his hair. So what the police were contending was that Scott Watson actually turned up to the to the party with shoulder length hair, went back and murdered Ben and Olivia, and then cut his hair the next day to mislead the police. And what's wrong with that claim is that uh, there was a photograph taken of Scott Watson on New Year's Eve in a supermarket, showing quite clearly that he had short back and sides hair, and it was before he went to the party. So how on earth could he? How, at least he was wearing a wig. How did he turn up at the party with long hair? Scott, Scott what, Watson has never had long hair. <laughs> what was the evidence that convicted him? To be honest with you, Rodney, uh, when you, I'd, I'd say that on appeal, that what they should have appealed on was the fact that the, he, he, he could not, he should not have been found guilty on the basis of evidence presented because. The, 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 when you look at all the evidence in its entirety, it just doesn't stack up. I, I would say to you this, the reason he was convicted, and, and Chris Watson, his father, and the Watson family will agree with me on this, it was because of the, the concerted effort, the defamation of Scott Watson in the press prior to prior to, prior to his uh, arrest, um, in, in defiance of the subjudicate law, which says you can't do that before somebody goes to trial, they, they got around it by saying there were no suspects. Publicly, they, they kept saying there were no suspects, but then they kept talking about the the sloop at the centre of the inquiry, which pointed straight to Scott Watson, and they printed, allowed the press to print all sorts of things in the paper about how he was dangerous and his friends were frightened of him. He, he had, a, had an explosive temper, and you know, by the by the time he got to court, he, he was he'd been demonised so much in the press. And, and this was all fed by the police deliberately. He'd been demonised so much that I think the, the the jury went into court thinking, "Well, this guy's so bad that even that even if he uh, it, it just overrode any evidence, uh, he's so bad that even if he didn't commit this crime, we should lock him up anyway because he's probably going to kill somebody else sooner or later." I mean, that's not the right reason to find somebody guilty, obviously, but. Um, you know, they ignored they for example, one thing, you know, they ignored the, the evidence that the, the Crown claimed that he made a trip from out from dumping bodies out in the middle of uh, Cook Strait, five miles out in Cook Strait to Erie Bay in a little over 
in a little over half an hour. Uh, Keith Hunter did that same trip in Murder on the Blade. It took him two and a half hours for, for Scott to for Scott to get to make that journey in his boat. In that amount of time, he would have had to be doing twenty five knots in a boat with a maximum hull speed weeded up as it was, a maximum hull speed of three and a half knots, and seven times its maximum speed. Absolutely impossible. You know, when you talk about the Lundy case and how long it took him to drive to Palmerston North, I mean, but this is way worse than that. There's no way that a yacht can do that speed. The only way Scott's boat could go that fast would be if it was being towed behind a destroyer, and that would tear the hull out of – that would tear the, the, the keel out of the boat and rip it to pieces. They're just not designed to go that fast. Yet that 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 evidence was right there in front of the jury – the, the judge turned around and said to the jury, well, maybe the timing doesn't matter, so it isn't important anyway, so forget about it. In other words, it doesn't matter if the facts doesn't don't fit, and that's what the judge said to them. Don't forget about the timing. It's not that important. So they, they, basically, they basically found him guilty in spite of, of clear evidence that showed that he couldn't possibly have done the crime, and they found him guilty, I believe, because of, because they hated him. Uh, I, I, I remember um, reading an article that Scott did in the North, South, North and South magazine talking about how when somebody was up on the stand giving, him, giving evidence and a member of the jury shot him this look of hate while this evidence was being given, and this, this is what was going on. It was they the really thing. the police really did a number on him because Absolutely I remember now it's coming back to me from the books that they refused to charge him so they could keep the vitriol and media naming yeah. and photo and having photographs of this guy. So you had concluded he was he was the perpetrator before he was charged. That's absolutely right. He he, he was he was um, guilty until proven guilty, is what it was. He wasn't innocent. It's supposed to be the other way around, of course. And um, also, too, back then, my problem was I sort of semi believed what was in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people did. A lot of people did. <laughs> I don't know. But back then, I sort of believed it, and it affected you. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it, uh, you I know what? Mean, I had a very famous journalist tell me. Yeah. This is coming back to me now. You, you'll appreciate yeah. this, Neville. Yeah. I think he covered this one, covered the case. And I knew him. He's a young young man, right? Yeah. And I said, what did you make of this case? Because I'd read Keith yeah. Hunter's book and Mike Gallagher's book. And he said, oh, yes, no, he definitely did it. It's just that the police never proved it. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's a very how, how extraordinary a statement is that from a journalist who was covering the case? He did it, yeah. just the police never proved it. Well, I'd say to that guy, you say you did it. Where's your proof? Where is yeah. your evidence? They had none. Yeah, that's right. They did. They didn't have any at all. Now, I'd say this to you, following on to that, is it appropriate that I say this this piece. Um, the, the, you've heard, you've heard of noble cause corruption, where. Where, um, okay, for example, the, you've got a really bad person who's committed some very serious crimes, but you can't find enough evidence. You don't think you've got enough evidence to to, um, to to put them away. You want to put them away to make to make the public safe because this is a really bad perpetrator. So you break a few rules. 
That, yes. that, you know, you, because you, you genuinely believe that he is guilty, but so you break a few rules. You may plant some evidence. You you may, as in as in Scott Watson's case, coerce a couple of jailhouse snitches to lie on the stand and say that he confessed when he actually no such thing. Uh, you'll do those sorts of things because we've got to, we've got to get this guy off the streets. Now, I would say very clearly that did not happen in Scott Watson's case, and that's what makes their actions so reprehensible, Rodney. They knew, and they always knew from day one that he was innocent. They deliberately set out to convict a man who they knew was innocent, and that is absolutely unacceptable behaviour from, from a Crown law team, from the police, it's not noble cause corruption. It is deliberate corruption. It is. It is. It is. Um, what's the word for it? Um, perverting the course of justice, uh, an offence for which some of those people should have gone to jail. And it's um, here we are. Why did they do? Why? How, how can the police and the court system conspire yeah. in such a way? Do you think? Well, you'd be—I'll be called a conspiracy theorist for saying it, but uh, maybe I'll just come out and say it. I, I believe—I believe—I'm pretty sure when you get these documents, I'm going to send you. You will understand, and you'll believe it too, that they—they they knew who the real perpetrators were. They either wanted to protect them, or it was too—it was going to be too hard to to. To go after an entire, because we're talking about an entire gang here, a very big, well-organised gang, which is operating throughout New Zealand, they would have they would have had maybe 20, 20, um, sus 20 uh, people in the dock <laughs> if they if they'd gone after the real perpetrators. Uh, it was easier to. It was just the same as as Arthur Allen Thomas, exactly the same. In the Thomas case, they knew who the they they knew who the the real murderer was. Len Demler, I can say that, but they, they didn't have the the murder weapon. It was going to be too hard, and they might not they might not get a conviction. So they looked at Arthur Allen Thomas and they said, "Well, we have got his gun. All we need to do is fire a couple of bullets, plant the shells, and slam dunk. We we'll, we will look to the public like and to our superiors like we've done our job. We'll get a pat on the back for a job well done. Doesn't matter that the guy in jail for the rest of his life actually is innocent. That's just a that's just collateral damage, and." I believe, in, and that's why I'm so passionate about this, Rodney, is because they they, they knew that the, who the people were that did it, and 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 going after Scott Watson, who was basically a scapegoat to cover up for the real perpetrators, they allowed a gang of killers to go free. And I will say this: Rob Pope did exactly the same things two two years later in the Lisa Blakey case. He knew who the people were who who killed Lisa Blakey. He he let them go, and convicted a guy who he knew because I know a police woman who worked on that case, and he admitted to her that he knew that Tim Taylor didn't commit the murder. But it, it was easier to build a case against him than to go after the the real mm. perpetrators, perpetrators who again were a gang, and were all alibiing each other. So it was going to be too hard to go after them, so they went after another guy. They went what? after the guy that picked her up in the car. The, they will stay on the, stay on the Scott Watson yeah. case. Yeah. Um, now, was it, one was a sloop, one was a catch. I'm, the, I'm not a boatie, so I get the two mixed no. up. Yeah. What was the one that Guy Wallace dropped Ben and Olivia off at? That was called. That was a catch. It had two masts, and it was a large boat. 
Okay, yeah, the catch the catch was seen yeah. subsequent all over New Zealand. Oh, look, <laughs> they stood up in court and told the court that it didn't exist and that nobody had ever reported seeing it. They told that to the jury. And in fact, no, it was seen all over New Zealand. It was seen it was seen most importantly by a police officer, a serving police officer in, in, in Napier, who actually went on board it and walked around, took notes, went back to his went back to his office and sent in a report to Operation Tam in Wellington, that's Pope and Co. And they turned around and said to this guy, We don't want your report. Thanks anyway, but we're not interested. And then they turned around and told the public the boat didn't exist. There was also 20 people who reported seeing that catch coming into the Manukau Harbour. I think that was on about the 7th of, 7th or 8th of January, something like that, because uh, it, it circumnavigated the whole North Island after it left after it left the Marlborough Sounds. It went all the way and, around. And, and those and the police, as I recall from yeah. the case, thinking back, to what has been uncovered. The yeah. police weren't interested in taking even notes if someone rang in and reported that. But yeah, that's right. A lot of the times that, that a lot of the times they um they just didn't um didn't even they just basically hung up on the people and said no we're not interested sort of thing. Now, now this leads me to another very important point following on well this is still part of your question. You're talking about people reporting the catch. There were seven documented sightings of Ben and Olivia between the 2nd and 6th of January by many members of the public, on, and some of them on the actual mystery catch. Now, one very important one was a group of people saw this mystery catch, very distinct-looking boat, one-off design, couldn't confuse it with anything else. They saw it come into the wharf at Mapua in the late afternoon on the 3rd of January. That's a, that's um, two days after the Crown claimed Scott Watson had killed the kids. They saw a couple exactly matching Ben and Olivia's description sitting in the cockpit of that boat with their hands tied behind their back. This group of people elected a spokesperson to, to ring up the police the next day, which they did first thing in the morning. The police didn't respond. Now, th this is a sighting of a couple that's been kidnapped, and there's been pictures of them in the paper, pictures of the boat. Where Have you seen these kids? Have you seen this boat? Please contact the police. And when these people contacted the police and said, not only have we seen the boat, but we've seen the two kids tied up in the back of it, the police did nothing. They eventually sauntered down there about six days later to have a look. By then, the, the boat had gone. Uh, according to the information I have, by then, Ben and Olivia were also dead. I mean, how on earth can they – they basically, in my mind, the police are accessories to murder because of their failure to respond when they could have. They could have gone and saved those kids that day. They they could have gotten their car and driven over to Mapua quickly and said, "Where's this boat?" You know, send a police launch out. The kids were still alive. They could have been rescued. Well, and they were it, they sacrificed how them. come? How come? Neville, yeah, yeah. It can be, according to you, yeah. so cut and dried yeah. that there's no evidence against Scott Watson. Yeah, that there are multiple witnesses that saw the boat that supposedly didn't exist. Yeah. All this is evidence that yeah. can be tested. Yeah. How can it be that this hasn't come out? 
it's it has come out. Um, it's come out in the MRG report. It's come out in this document that I'm going to send you. Um, but the, be, before we got this 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 um, classified document, uh, we already knew about all the reportings. That we knew about the report from the people in Mapua that saw that saw the kids on the boat on the 3rd of January. That that was already known. But the police at at the time. The police covered all this up. They, as far as I know, none of that was disclosed, disclosed to the defence. None of those sightings of Ben and Olivia. Well, one was um, Ted and Yvonne Walsh saw Ben and Olivia on the mystery catch uh, on the second of January in the morning, coming out of Queen Charlotte Sound. They, they were ten and, um, Ted and Yvonne Walsh were on a charter boat with a whole with about a dozen other people all fishing. They all saw this. Distinctive yacht go past, with a young couple sitting in the in the cockpit with their hands up behind their backs, appearing like they couldn't move. Ted Walsh later was shown a photograph uh, a, of Olivia Hope as she looked on New Year's Eve, and he absolutely positively identified Olivia Hope as that girl that he saw on that boat that day on the second of January. Uh, the police discounted and discredited his his. Um, his information completely overlooked the fact that the twelve other people had seen it as well, and and then according to a conversation I had with with Yvonne Walsh, who's still alive, unfortunately Ted has passed. According to Yvonne Walsh, the police bullied Ted and 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 uh, Yvonne to try and get them to change their evidence. Yeah, uh, Yvonne's own words were that the police got really heavy with them, trying to tell them, "No, you didn't see that boat. All you're lying. Come on, change your story." Uh, which is what they did to Guy Wallace as well. They tried to force him to change his evidence. Um, what a shocking story. What a shocking, shocking story. And how do you live? How do you yourself live knowing all this and Scott Watson in jail for 25 years? Well, when I when I <laughs> I said to Keith Hunter when we had one of our talks after, you know, when I just had met him again for the first time in many years, I said, look, Keith, I said, this is all your bloody fault. I said, you and your damn book. I said, I can't sleep at night now. I wake up every night tossing and turning and thinking about this case. I can't believe how bad it is. And and when I when I went and visited Scott, I've gone and visited him in jail twice. And I, when I went when I drove home, I, I I burst into tears in the car because it was it just came home to me how shocking this this was what what they'd done to this guy, you know this this guy that was portrayed in the press as this evil woman hating psychopath. I, I went there to, to prison with with his partner of fourteen years. She went with me. And he was so polite. He was pulling a chair out and getting his cups of tea. And I thought, this guy is so – I always thought I was a gentleman, but he, he put me to shame the way he treated his mm. girlfriend. And I thought, this isn't a woman hater. This isn't a psychopath. This is this is just an – he's just an ordinary guy like like we are. He's he's not a monster. And, is his and, partner and, still stood by him? They have, they have since split up. Um but they're still in they're still in contact, and uh, I when I went down to the to the Justice for All meeting, I met up with Chrissy. We, we've stayed friends, and we went out to dinner together. And uh, she's a she, lovely woman. She, you've met her? Yes. Yeah. Oh, she's lovely. Yeah. We we went and had a meal together, and she she said that Scott. She's still in touch. I think she speaks to Scott on the phone at least every week. They're not like 
partners anymore, but she can't speak to him, and he, he still tells her that he loves her, and I believe that's true. Um, you know, the, the whole the whole thing is just, you know, I don't go around crying all the time for nothing, but I, I was so, honestly, it was such an emotional thing for me, and to be honest with you, getting involved in this case has changed my life. It's it's um it's changed who I am. Uh, it's changed me. It's, it's changed me from what I used to be a very selfish person in the himself, and now I'm spending all my time fighting for somebody who can't fight for himself. And uh, it's it's such a righteous cause, and 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 I'm committed to being in this for for the long haul. For as long as I live, as long as I'm alive, I'll still keep fighting this because it is, and I've said it before, it is, it is the most – I've said it on on my blogs that I put on Facebook. I'm, I'm, in the, I'm a moderator in the Free Scott Watson Facebook group, and, and, I, and I've said this many times. This was the most evil act ever perpetrated by a group of people whose job it is supposed to be to uphold the law. And and they did absolutely the opposite. How is it upholding law? How is it keeping the community safe to deliberately let killers go and then set somebody, an innocent person up to take the rap, to take the heat off the, the people who really did the crime for whatever reason, because you want to protect them or because it's going to be too hard to go after them? You know, that, that, that's... To, you're just uh, prosecuting somebody by expediency. It's just easier. How, to get how is his dad holding up? Oh, look, terrific! I, I I met Tom, his brother, and Chris at the at the meeting I went down to. Chris was very sick a while ago with prostate cancer, and we were all worried that that he he was wasn't going to make it. And I heard recently from Tom that he's he's recovered. He's in remission. This is the dad, right? The dad, he's, he, he's he's seventy five years old, but he, he's his health is good. I, when I met him, I said, "How is your health now?" And I asked him, and he said, "No, I'm I'm really, I'm really feeling well." And he looked fit and well, and it, that, that's because Chris Watson is such an amazing man, and I, and I, I look up to him so much. Um, and Tom, that the both of them, Scott is so lucky to have such an awesome family behind him. And I I um, listened to something. That they that they posted online. It was Sandy Watson speaking at the last Justice for All meeting. I think it was in two two thousand and nineteen or eighteen. Sandy is a sister. Sandy's a sister, and she she was talking about the impact it all had on the family and 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 the way they were treated, the way the police during the investigation the police went around their neighbours house to house telling all the neighbours what bad people they were that should stay away from them. They they tried to search. Scott's grandparents' house with a fake warrant. They turned up to the door waving a piece of paper saying, we've got a warrant to search your house. The grandfather grabbed the piece of paper off them and it was a blank piece of paper. This is the sort of thing that they were doing. They were going around bullying witnesses to try to force them to change their evidence. They were they were bullying the family. They chased Sandy Dot Watson down the road, threatening to take her children off her. Uh, these, these are officers of the law. These are people that have sworn to to protect the public, what are they doing? What you know? What kind of a police force have we got that does? Okay, it was twenty five years ago, but has anything changed? We have to ask. We well, never got away we, with it. Tell me, I mean, and how come the media aren't beating the drum? 
gosh, the media played a big part in, in the defamation of Scott Watson, uh, pre-trial defamation of Scott. They were right on board with the police. They, they were they were part of a lynch mob, and I, I don't know what I don't know what their what their stance is now. I know we've got people like Paul Henry who've been a big supporter, but he's he's an individual. He's not part of any news organization. The, the, the news haven't been that supportive. I mean, we, we held a big, I organized a big um, protest for Scott Watson about five years ago down in the bottom of Auckland by the waterfront. Let all the media know that we were there because we wanted them to come and take photos, report on it. No one showed up. No one showed up. It's like they... It's like they put a boycott on us or something. It's like they've been ordered by the government to keep the hands off this, you know. We, um, we, we well, what we, I know about journalism is this: yeah, that journalists get great stories from the police, yeah, and they're a great source of stories and news, yeah, yeah. and they don't want to dry that up, and yeah. so they tend to run the police line. And of course, it's got worse over the years, so it's become. The the police use the media yeah. for their own ends. It's a it's a shocking circumstance. And Keith Hunter has been on this case for how long? Oh gosh, when did Keith? Well, Keith got involved. Um, he he made the documentary Murder on the Blade in two thousand and three. Um, there you go. Think- that was a wonderful documentary. I've got a copy of it. I I, I, my, I wore mine out watching it. Keith, Keith mm. gave me another one, but it, it is it's marvelous. Um, and and anybody that um, <coughs> he sent copies of that to everybody in Parliament. Uh, you and Nando Tanchos were the only two that responded. Um, the rest of them are too scared or don't want to don't want to rock the boat. They're just scared of you. They're scared of losing the redneck vote if they say anything. They think if they don't say anything at all, they won't offend anybody. So they're well, in my mind, they're they're all weak and useless. That's why I have so much Well, you know, when you when you have someone of the experience and caliber of Keith Hunter who produced a documentary, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, has he written two books on Scott Watson's case? Or one? No, he wrote one, He only wrote one book one, uh, called Trial by Pickery, and it was in he, 2007, I believe. Okay, and he wrote two on uh, the crew murders, I think. That's where I've got confused. Oh, he, he, I've read one of his called uh, The Case the of Miss- the Missing Bloodstain, yes. and that was on the crew murders, yeah. That That's was a, a fantastic movie. book. So here he is. Let's just picture this. Yeah. Highly accredited journalist and documentary maker, very, very well respected. Yeah. He produces a documentary. Yeah. He writes a full book, putting his case. Now, in the normal course of events, you would, if you're the police force or the government or whatever, you would have to say he is wrong for these reasons. One, yeah. two, three, four, five. Yeah. Doesn't happen. No, no. And you know, and it doesn't happen because it can't be done. All they no. can say is, look, he was convicted. End of story. Yeah, that's what they do say. Yeah. He was tried, he was tried by a jury of his peers, uh, which he wasn't actually, because they the judge broke the law and allowed the police to vet the jury. 
And that gave them the, and it's, this is in Keith Hunter's book, um, it gave them the ability, not not only because the judge didn't want anybody in the jury who, who, who'd had a criminal record, not just serious ones or any criminal record at all. That was, that was the purported reason for wanting to vet the jury. But that also gave the police the ability to remove anybody from the jury pool who had voting experience, who would understand the Erie Bay trip and who would understand the business of boats being rafted up together and, and not rocking and making a commotion if somebody was being murdered. Uh, I think it's very clear I think I think the way Keith puts it in his book is much advantage would have gone to the prosecution by the removal of anybody from the jury with voting knowledge. Mm. He doesn't he doesn't accuse them of actually doing it, but he points out that they could have done it. And I think it's clear that they did do it from the point of view that if there'd been any voting people on that jury, like myself, I would have laughed their evidence out. Of course, I of course I would have said, no way. No way a boat can go that fast. No way you can murder somebody in a raft up without making a noise. And on no, that no boat, way can Guy Wallace mistake the two boats. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He was an experienced. So I would have just sat there in a jury room, and I'd I, even I were, oh, if I was the only one, I would. They would have ended up with a hung jury. I would have said, no, there is no way I'm voting guilty based on that evidence. So I think it's it's very clear to me that they made sure nobody was was. Um, on the jury who is qualified to make those judgments. Um, Neville, in, in wrapping up, what yeah. happens, what's happening next? Uh, well, the, the uh, he's got his parole hearing coming up, which uh, doesn't, when you, when you read the documents, I'm going to send you by, by five o'clock on Friday, uh, we're going to send you all the stuff pertaining. It's not, it's only two or three pages. Don't, don't, Worry, it's not going to be a huge volume, but it's all the stuff pertaining to what the, the all the parole reports that have happened up until now, and and the reasons they've given for for denying him parole. Um, if they carry on down the same road that they've been on, it's almost certain they're going to deny him parole again, and uh, he won't be eligible again for another five years. Uh, that uh, so we're we're concerned about that. We're trying to. Trying to do something, we're not going to just sit back and watch it happen. We're going to try and do something about it. Um, this action group that I'm talking about is is made up of some very dedicated people, and we're very very serious about what we're going to do. And and it's driven by a guy. We were being advised and and driven by a guy. I won't mention his name, but he's. I think he told me he's been in in, in the high court representing himself in about a hundred and on about 140 different occasions. Wow. He always represented himself. He has vast knowledge of the justice system, how it works. Um, we're going. The next thing we're going to do is is confront the the Court of Appeal situation, the fact that we believe Justice Pankhurst has tainted any chance Scott Watson has of a fair trial in New Zealand because of the comments that he made. To, to the Court of Appeal. We don't think that, that he should have made it. We don't know what his brief was. We're going to find out. Um, in the me in the meantime, if things go ahead as planned, as they are planning them, if we don't, if somebody doesn't intervene, if I was a betting person, I would bet that they've already decided they're going to find Scott guilty again in the Court of Appeal. I, I believe that decision was already been made at a very high up level. Um, you, you might ask, why are they doing all this? Why are they so determined to keep this guy in jail? And in closing, I would just say this to you, that if they if they do 
if they do release him, if they suddenly turned around after all this time and, and said, okay, he's not guilty, you can go home, they're then going to have to go back and look at the case again and say, okay, if Scott Watson didn't kill them, who did? And they're yeah. going to have to reopen the investigation. And, that, Boy, and And how did we get it wrong? Yeah, and that is going to be a tin of worms that is going to be unimaginably complex and it's going to cause huge embarrassment for a lot of people. Mm. So in order to avoid that embarrassment, that it's the easiest thing for them to do is just keep Scott Watson in jail, keep following the false narrative that, oh, he's this terrible murderer where you can't even let him out on parole because he's so dangerous. I mean, that whole story is absolutely false. I know. Long- I have. I had it explained to me when I was an MP by a yeah. very senior yeah. uh, civil servant, like one of the top few, and yeah. he explained to me, straight-faced, basically, yeah. That the system, faith in the system, yeah. was more important than any one individual. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. And they, they, they don't want to lose credibility. They don't no. want it to be realised. Um, what can happen? Una Yagos, the Solicitor General, has quoted recently in a newspaper saying uh, of the Alan Hall case, saying that. I think that the headline was "Sometimes we get it wrong," or "Sometimes we make that's right." Sometimes we make mistakes. Now, I challenge her on that. Deliberately withholding evidence. It's not a mistake. That's not a mistake. That that is perverting the course of justice. That is a jailable offence. And to water it down by saying, "Oh, sometimes you make mistakes," it is just watering it down. It's it's Mm. excuse making. Now, what they actually did is they deliberately they broke the law by deliberately withholding evidence from the court, evidence which could have sent, set a, 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 an innocent man free years before. And to water that down and say, oh, we got it wrong, sorry, it's not, not well, good enough. If someone was interested in this case, yeah. what would be the best thing they could read or look at? Oh look, um, you can still you can still buy Murder on the Blade. You contact Hunter Productions. Um, just Google that; it'll show you, show you the, the website. You can buy that for about twenty something dollars. Um, get hold of the book Trial by Trickery. Very good. Um, the Marlborough Mystery by Mike Kelliger. You've you, you've met Mike. Yes. Uh, they're, they're they're all good books. Um, right. Those two would be the top ones, I'd say, okay. Trial by Trickery and, and the Mulgrims. Well, Neville, thank you for your work. Yeah. Thank you for coming on to our show. This is Neville Munro speaking up on behalf of a miscarriage yeah. of justice with regards to Scott Watson yeah. and his efforts. And yeah. when you do look at these books, I realise that you're only hearing one side. I've tried to follow the other side so I could yeah. have a balanced view. Can't yeah. really find it. It does make it hard to sleep. Yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? Well, thank you very much, Rodney. I appreciate very much the uh, not at the all. opportunity, and not uh, at I hope that, we, hope that we can stay in touch. I would like to we stay will. in touch with you, we'll and I'll send you, I'll send you this information. And the thing I need from you is for you to give my very best regards to Keith Hunter, a great man. Absolutely. In fact, I'll I'll ring him up now. Right. <laughs> so I don't forget. Tell him we'll have him on. Uh, That was Neville Munro advocating on behalf of Scott Watson. Uh, You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. If you're interested, I can tell you, um, Keith Hunter's and Mike Gallagher's book and Keith Hunter's documentary, 
great reads. Fascinating. Very, very disturbing. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.